This series contains adult language and depictions of graphic violence. Listener discretion is advised. On August 4, 1892, New England industrialist Andrew Johnson Borden was found murdered in the parlor of his home in Fall River, Massachusetts. Upstairs in a guest bedroom, his wife Abby would also be discovered dead, killed in the same manner as her husband. They were hacked to death with an axe. Abby having received 19 blows to the head, Andrew receiving 11. Andrew Borden's first wife, Sarah Borden, died of ovarian cancer when their two daughters were still toddlers. Three years later, he would marry Abby, who would help him build his fortune and raise his children. The older of Andrew's daughters was named Emma, while the youngest was Lizzie. Lizzie Borden. In the annals of Fall River history, some might say mythology, Lizzie Borden remains as either the axe-wielding double murderer or the falsely accused symbol for the persecuted feminist. But did Lizzie kill her parents? And are there any connections to a grisly string of murders nearly a century later in Fall River? The answers might surprise you. Welcome back to The Devil Within. On today's episode, we're going to be spending some time in the great state of Massachusetts, in a city called Fall River. And when I say spending some time, I guess I should say spending two different times, because we're going to be examining two separate events that happened in the same city, almost a hundred years apart. Let's dive in. At the time of the murders of Andrew and Abby Borden, there was a lot of activity at the Borden household. All this activity made the case difficult to precisely investigate. First, there were visitors, namely John Morse, the brother of Andrew's late wife, Sarah. John was visiting in order to wrap up some business he had with Andrew and had arrived in Fall River on August 3rd, the day before the murders. There was also the person of Bridget Sullivan, the Borden's 25-year-old live-in maid, along with Andrew, Abby, Emma, and Lizzie. On the morning of August 4th, Mr. Borden left for his morning walk at the same time John Morse left to visit a family member in town. Here's where things get a little out of the ordinary. Now, although the Bordens were very wealthy, Mr. Borden insisted on frugality. And though the size of the household would normally demand several servants, he carried only Miss Sullivan, while the remainder of the chores were seen to by his grown daughters, Emma and Lizzie. Those duties included the cleaning and making up of the guest room when necessary. The morning of the 4th was one of those mornings that the guest room required attention. But the daughters remained downstairs, and it was Abby, the lady of the house, who went up to the guest room to make the bed. It was shortly after Abby arrived in the guest room, sometime after 9 a.m., that an unknown assailant entered, waited for Abby to turn and face them, then delivered the first blow from the axe to the side of Abby's head. Abby then fell face first onto the floor, 
suffering facial and nose contusions in the process, before the killer struck her 18 more times on the back of the head. Mr. Borden returned from his walk at 10.30 a.m. The maid, Miss Sullivan, claims to then have helped him out of his boots and into his slippers before retiring to her own third-floor apartment to clean the windows. Miss Sullivan claims to have heard Lizzie on the second floor around this time, though that claim was refuted by Lizzie. It was just after 11 a.m. that Miss Sullivan was summoned to the living room by Lizzie, shouting, Come quick! Father's dead! Somebody came in and killed him! Mr. Borden was found dead on the living room couch, curiously still in his boots, despite Miss Sullivan's story. He had been struck with an axe at least 11 times. The ensuing investigation didn't yield many clues or any hard evidence pointing to a perpetrator. Axe heads were found in the basement, family members were questioned, and alibis were checked out. Investigators didn't care for Lizzie's demeanor, and when she told them she wasn't feeling well, they quickly suspended questioning her before even checking her clothing for bloodstains. When word spread of the double murder, it became a media sensation in Fall River. John Morse, the visiting uncle, was mobbed as he tried to leave the house and pressed for answers. Eventually, it was deemed too dangerous for him to leave, and police escorted him back to the Borden residence. On the evening of August 5th, Lizzie was informed that she was a suspect in the double murder. The next morning, a friend who had stayed the night to offer support for the Borden sisters claims to have seen Lizzie tearing up a dress and burning it on the kitchen stove. She claimed it had been ruined when she brushed against wet paint. It was never determined if that was the dress she was wearing the day of the murders. The trial of Lizzie Borden began in May of the following year. Five days before the jury began deliberations, right in the middle of the trial, there was another axe murder in the area. A woman named Bertha Manchester was hacked to death in her kitchen. The similarities to the Borden murders were unmistakable, and the jurors found this new information impossible to ignore. A Portuguese immigrant was arrested and charged in the murder of Mrs. Manchester. The evidence against Lizzie Borden was beset with contradictions within the investigative team, a complete lack of physical evidence tying Borden to either murder, inconclusive reports regarding the possible murder weapon, and the coup de grace, the Manchester murder occurring during the trial, with the discovery of the body occurring while Lizzie was in the courtroom. On June 5th, after only 90 minutes, the jury came back with a unanimous acquittal of Lizzie Borden. Although cleared of wrongdoing, Lizzie remained the prime suspect for the remainder of her life. That life spent right in the middle of Fall River. Years later, after relocating to Montana, the housemaid Bridget Sullivan made a deathbed confession that she had tailored her trial testimony to clear Lizzie. The testimony in question was regarding the dress that Lizzie destroyed the day after the murders. You'll remember Lizzie claimed it was ruined by wet paint 
and Miss Sullivan corroborated that story. And the veracity of her statement went unchallenged in court. This revelation led to an interesting theory about the case. Although there were other possible assailants, possible in terms of opportunity and access, but not quite motive, Lizzie always seemed the most likely candidate. The new theory was that Lizzie and Miss Sullivan were secretly lovers. Lizzie never married and was widely believed to be gay by the residents of Fall River, although this was never proven or even publicly discussed given the public sentiment toward homosexuality way back in the Reconstruction era. It's been speculated that Abby Borden, Lizzie's stepmother, walked in on Lizzie and Miss Sullivan in the middle of a romantic tryst. Remember, making up the guest room was Lizzie's job, so there was no reason to believe they would be disturbed. After trying to explain to Abby the situation and asking for discretion, either Lizzie or Miss Sullivan killed Abby. Later, when Mr. Borden came home, Lizzie attempted to explain what had happened to her father and asked if he would allow the relationship with Miss Sullivan to continue. When the request was vehemently rebuffed, Mr. Borden had to die as well. Then, the two co-conspirators worked together to make sure neither was discovered, and they got away with murder. Of course, we'll probably never know the truth, and the Borden X murders remain unsolved to this day. But how does a double murder more than 130 years ago find relevance in today's world of true crime? Well, Fall River, more than a century after the Borden murders, was again rocked by violence and tragedy. And while the new case has many more twists and turns, betrayals and obfuscations, and unfortunately victims, there are similarities that are impossible to ignore. First, a quick history of Fall River, Massachusetts. Fall River is a city on the eastern shore of Mount Hope Bay in southeastern Massachusetts. Sharing an oft-disputed border with Rhode Island, the city was originally part of the Plymouth Colony that was previously inhabited by the Native American tribe called the Wampanoag. In 1653, members of the Massachusetts Bay Colony officially settled Freetown. Fast forward a few centuries, several colonial boundary disputes that required Supreme Court intervention in the 1860s, and Freetown, or at least parts of it, would become a city known as Troy, which would eventually become the city of Fall River, Massachusetts, named for the Quickashan River that flows through the town. Quickashan is the Wampanoag word for falling river or leaping or falling water. Industry came early to Fall River, with several mills being established in the early 1700s by an early industrialist named Benjamin Church. In fact, in 1714, Mr. Church would sell his land along the river, along with the water rights, to the newly arrived Borden brothers, thereby planting the seeds of that family's fortunes generations later. The Fall River Militia successfully defended the city during the Revolutionary War at the Battle of Freetown in 1778. And as stated, by 1861, the Supreme Court would make Fall River officially part of Massachusetts, 
despite Rhode Island's claims to the city and all that wonderful tax revenue. I would bet that most New Year's resolutions include at least one of the following. Work out more and eat better. Am I right? Well, hitting the gym is up to you, but eating right is up to Factor. Factor's ready-to-eat meal delivery takes all the stress out of meal planning, which sets you up for success. And you can tailor your meals to any diet you might be considering. Going keto? No problem. Counting calories? Done. Making the leap into vegan? Factor has you covered. No grocery shopping, no meal prep, no cooking, no mess. All that equals more time for you. It's less expensive and way more delicious than takeout. Plus, Factor offers way more than ready-to-eat meals. They have cold-pressed juices, smoothies, energy bites, veggie sides, anything I can think of to keep me energized throughout the week. And I never have to worry about getting bored with my food choices. I'm able to change my orders every week. I can pause if I'm going out of town and reschedule for when I get back. Oh, and Factor also offers snack options and breakfast now. So what are you waiting for? Oh, right. The promo code. Head to factormeals.com slash devilwithin50 and use code devilwithin50 to get 50% off. That's code devilwithin50 at factormeals.com slash devilwithin50. For the next hundred years, Fall River would be an industrial powerhouse of the Northeast. With over a million spindles, Fall River was the largest textile producing city in America, as well as operating several granite quarries, given the exceptional quality of the granite bedrock the city was built upon. The city peaked both in population and industrial exporting in the 1920s, just before the Great Depression shuttered most of the mills and bankrupted the city. While World War II saw a surge in the need for textiles and other industry, the boom was short-lived and the city was forced to pivot to other means of survival as the emerging southern textile industry was simply too powerful to fight. A steady decline through the middle of the 20th century found the city in the 1970s, like many other cities in the Northeast, struggling with poverty, drugs, crime, and a generation of young people with few prospects. And this is where we pick up our main story. It's been said that the devil dreams on an idle horse. Now that's beautiful phrasing, to be sure. But take the devil out of it, and what do you get? Stay busy or you'll do stupid shit. Now take that sentiment and apply it to Fall River in the late 70s. A generation of kids in their teens and early 20s with no jobs, no prospects, a country in turmoil, only a few years removed from the Watergate scandal, and a community awash in a steady flow of illicit drugs from cities like New York, Boston, and Providence. That's a dangerous mix that's bound to welcome some bad ideas. And maybe the devil himself. On the evening of October 13th, 1979, the body of Doreen Levesque was found beneath the bleachers of a high school in Fall River. Her hands and feet were bound. Her skull had been crushed by blows from large rocks found near the crime scene, and her body had been abused in ways that are unnecessary to get into. Suffice it to say, it was a brutal 
some might say ritualistic, homicide. Miss Levesque was a runaway from nearby New Bedford, Massachusetts, only 17 years old, homeless, addicted to narcotics, and earning money as a sex worker. Given her lifestyle, the police had any number of leads to follow or people to question. But the investigation hadn't gotten very far when the following November, a man named Andy Maltese walked into the Fall River Police Department to report his girlfriend, Barbara Raposa, missing. What's more, he blamed a local satanic cult. A cult that he claimed was also responsible for the death of Doreen Levesque. How did he know this? He and his now missing girlfriend were also members of the cult, and Mr. Maltese was willing to introduce police to other members who may be willing to help. Law enforcement was soon introduced to Karen Marsden and her girlfriend, Robin Murphy. Like Levesque and Raposa, Karen Marsden was a sex worker with a drug habit. Robin Murphy, on the other hand, had higher ambitions. She had recently made the jump from teenage sex worker to teenage pimp. What Marsden and Murphy would tell police was that a 26-year-old man named Carl Drew, a rival Fall River pimp, was responsible for the death of Doreen Levesque. Doreen had allegedly informed Drew that she was firing him as her pimp and would instead work under the protection of Robin Murphy. Carl Drew was known in prostitution circles as the devil. And he ran his Fall River territory with brutality. Drew was an abused child who ran away at 14 years old. He was illiterate, and he saw violence as the only way to effectively solve his problems. Karen Marsden, in turn, was terrified that Drew would seek retribution when he learned that she and Robin Murphy had talked to the cops. It was Marsden herself that told police how Carl Drew had turned his collection of prostitutes into a satanic cult. That nearby Freetown State Forest was the chosen site for the group's ritual activity, and that Drew was enraged that she decided to work with a rival. The police offered her protection, but incredibly, it was declined. On January 6, 1980, the woman that Andy Maltese reported missing, Barbara Raposa, was found murdered. So that's two members, or former members, of Carl Drew's outfit that have turned up dead. Both, it's worth reporting, that had supposedly only recently decided to change teams and work with Robin Murphy. Things were beginning to take shape, but then the cops brought the former boyfriend, Andy Maltese, in for questioning. Mr. Maltese denied any involvement in Barbara's death, but, and this is the really weird part, he claimed to have had a psychic dream that allowed him to clearly see every detail of the crime scene, including several details that the police hadn't released to the public. I mean, was he serious? Did he think the cops would just nod along, going, yeah, 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 this checks out, then thank him for sharing his psychic gift and send him on his way? Thankfully, the police called bullshit and charged Maltese with the murder of Barbara Raposa. And here's where Robin Murphy the teenage pimp, comes more fully into the story. She offered to help the police in their prosecution of Maltese by testifying against him in exchange for an immunity deal, which she was granted. 
she claimed to have witnessed both the Levesque and Raposa murders. And Maltese's reason for killing Barbara? She had cheated on him with Robin Murphy. Yes, there seems to be a bit of a pattern forming regarding Robin Murphy and her relationships with the sex workers she managed or hoped to manage. More on that later. Here's the part where police started questioning the veracity of Murphy's, quote, help. The Raposa crime scene was incredibly similar to the Levesque crime scene, with similar wounds, means of death, and physical desecration, both pre- and post-mortem. However, Murphy was adamant that Maltese killed Raposa, but it was Carl Drew who killed Levesque back in October. They were in Drew's car, she claimed. It was Drew Murphy and her girlfriend Karen Marsden and an additional guy from Drew's orbit named Willie Smith. I know, lots of names getting thrown around. It'll tighten up here in a minute. So Carl Drew, the devil pimp, and his friend Willie forced young Doreen Levesque into the car because he had heard that she had decided to leave his organization and go solo to work without a pimp. Not, it should be noted, to join forces with Robin Murphy, but to go solo. According to Murphy, she and Marsden waited in the car as Carl Drew and Willie killed Levesque under the bleachers. But soon after Murphy's statement to the cops, Karen Marsden had her own story to tell. And it implicated Murphy, kind of. She allegedly played more of a role than she was letting on, but it wasn't enough for the police to withdraw Murphy's immunity deal. Why? Well, Marsden fell victim to the, quote, imperfect witness fallacy. Basically, owing to her lifestyle that involved several different areas of criminality, deception, and drug abuse, the police decided that anything she said needed to be viewed through that filter, and she was largely discredited. And wouldn't you know, Come February 1980, Karen Marsden would turn up missing. Soon, another witness would come forward to implicate Murphy in Marsden's murder, even though Karen Marsden was only a missing person at the time. Her name was Maureen Sparta, still another former lover of Murphy, and an admitted devil worshiper, who claimed that Murphy admitted to joining Carl Drew and driving Marsden into the woods and sacrificing her to Satan. Marsden's body was never found. The only evidence of her death was a portion of her fractured skull that police recovered deep in the Freetown State Forest. This new information led police to withdraw Murphy's immunity deal and charge her with the death of Karen Marsden. Carl Drew was also arrested for the same crime. Murphy blamed Drew for the majority of the activity, claiming she was forced, under penalty of death, to participate. Eventually, everyone mentioned in this story would admit to being involved in satanic worship, and their crimes, in one way or another, were committed in honor of the devil. But they all also denied any formal attachment to any organized group. Andy Maltese, with the help of testimony from Robin Murphy, would receive a life sentence for the death of Barbara Raposa. He died in prison in 1998. Robin Murphy would take a plea deal, 
and copped a second-degree murder in the death of Karen Marsden in exchange for testimony against Carl Drew. Willie Davis, the friend of Carl Drew, would escape prosecution for the Marsden murder, but would eventually go to jail for, no kidding, stabbing Maureen Sparta. He served seven years for attempted murder. Carl Drew's trial for the murder of Doreen Levesque, along with Robin Murphy's testimony, was held back as a safety net in case he beat the rap for the Marsden murder. But he didn't. He was convicted of first-degree murder despite the lack of any physical evidence tying him to the crime. He received a sentence of life without parole. Now, again, I know there are a lot of moving parts in this story, a lot of names to keep straight. If you're interested in learning more, the streaming service MGM Plus produced a terrific docuseries on the subject, and it's definitely worth checking out. As a final thought, I'm sure you noticed that the name Robin Murphy showed up over and over again in the string of tragic events. Yes, she was sent to prison for her role in the death of Karen Marsden, but she was released in 2004. But then she went back again for parole violations in 2007 and is in jail to this day. But what was her real role in the deaths of these three young sex workers? A few years back, a retired detective offered a theory, and it's a story as old as time. Jealousy. If you remember, Robin Murphy at one time or another dated both Barbara Raposa and Karen Marsden. Well, it turns out that she was in love with Doreen Levesque at the time of her death. And further, Doreen had recently broke it off to date Carl Drew, her new pimp. It was a crime of passion, but Robin needed a new girlfriend and set her sights on Barbara Raposa. After a brief fling, Barbara broke it off and went back to her boyfriend, Andy Maltese. By this time, Robin knew how to handle a girl who turned her back on her. Barbara ended up dead, and Robin set up Andy to take the fall. But what about Karen Marsden? Same deal. This new theory suggests that the idea of Karen leaving Carl Drew was all a ruse. Karen had simply rebuffed Murphy's advances, so Murphy fed a story to the unhinged Carl Drew, the evil devil Carl Drew, that led him to do Robin's dirty work for her. Of course, it's just a theory. But as the man said, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Now, I'm in no way looking to improve on the words of the playwright, but given my own experiences in Massachusetts, I would offer a slight variation to that immortal line. Hell hath no fury like a New England woman, scorned or otherwise. Thanks for spending some time with me today. I appreciate the listen. If you're interested, you can find The Devil Within on your social media feeds, and I would appreciate the follow. We're on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at The Devil Within Pod. And make sure you're following the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now. We'll catch up with you next time. Stay safe out there. The Devil Within is a Cloud 10 Media production, recorded live at Bel Air Studios in Los Angeles, California. Written and produced by Brandon Morgan. Executive produced by Sim Sarna. Our post-production supervisor is Bruce Whitkin, who also provided original music for this episode. For The Devil Within, I'm your host, Brandon Morgan.
Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.